Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is our clinical cardiac coordinator, Brad Wart. Hello. Today, Brad and I are going to discuss uh, one of those topics that really uh, strikes some fear into my heart, so I'm sure it does other listeners out there, and that's the left ventricular assist device, or LVADs. And as the resident old man around the table today, uh, these were not an item. They were not an option. They did not exist uh, through most of my training. So learning about LVADs and starting to see these patients uh, more frequently in the emergency department has uh, really required you know, some extra work on my part. And for most of the listeners out there, uh, these, these are new, new devices, new technology uh, to y'all as well. We've had some recent LVAD runs here at MCHD, and this has been brought up uh, multiple times in the office. So anytime that happens for us in the podcast realm, that screams time for a time for a new episode and a little education. So, you know, these are becoming more common. They can function as both a bridge to transplant and a destination device for in-stage uh, congestive heart failure patients. We know that populations aging, these are just going to become more common. They're going to become, I assume, like every other form of technology, more streamlined and, and more easily implantable and, you know, more, more technologically advanced. There's not a whole lot of EMS data related to LVADs. There was a recent pre-hospital emergency care paper out of San Diego that showed the most common complaints from LVAD patient calls being weakness and chest pain, with the most common ED diagnosis being GI bleed. So we'll talk more about that as we move through the discussion. Surprisingly, in this study, only 5% of the LVAD patient ED encounters were via EMS. Granted, this was 16 over four years, so not terribly common. I have to have to think, Brad, this is going to become more common as we as we advance our technology. Not only that, but as uh, more common as far as heart transplants go, the more of those we do, the more people we can see being bridged. All right. So let's before we go any deeper, let's hit some LVAD basics. So basic parts. There are four parts. There's the battery, the controller, the drive line, and the pump. So how many of those are inside the patient? That's the perfect lead in question. The pump is inside the patient. The drive line is the trick question there because it is inside and outside the patient. So the pump is implanted either in the intra-abdominal cavity or the intrathoracic cavity. I don't think that's terribly important to get that level of detail, but the pump has a drive line that connects to the exterior, the battery that powers the pump, and the battery and the controller connect. And the controller basically is the portion that gives you the information regarding the, the pump function. There are three main versions that are out there now, and they're second-generation pumps, uh, the HeartMate 2 and 3 and the HeartWare. Again, not terribly important from a treatment standpoint, but when we relay information, uh, I think it's a good idea for us to try to figure out which, which pump we're talking about when we're communicating with folks over the phone. Make sure, make sure the patient and the family brings their spare batteries and don't mess with batteries on your own, do that in conjunction with the patient, the family, because they're they're going to be very well versed and well taught most times on how to deal with the batteries, and you do not want the LVAD to go dead. Uh, the controller is going to give you vital information. You may not understand it, but it's going to be important info for you to relay to the coordinators. Alarms are going to often come in color coded 
fashion. So red being worse than yellow, being worse than green. And remember that the drive line is an important part because that's what connects the internal pump to the exterior battery and controller. And as we talk further, that can potentially be a source for infection. So we always want to, as sterilely as possible, inspect that drive line uh, exit point. So is that going to look like a G-tube? Yeah, I mean, it's all going to depend on how the patient cares for it. It's going to depend on where it's implanted. It's going to be a basically a cord that exits either the upper abdominal area, more than likely the upper abdominal area. And again, I'm far from a uh, cardiac transplant, cardiothoracic surgeon that's implanting these babies. So I would uh, urge you to check uh, Google images because there's plenty of pictures on there. And as always, that picture is worth a thousand words. Fair. So when you're contacting the team, how do you know what device and what who to contact? Do they come with a card like a pacemaker does? Do you look on the back of the device? Well, most times, again, the family and caregivers, the patient, if the patient's awake, they're going to be very well versed in their device and their contact information. Oftentimes they have pre-printed cards, like if you've seen patients with cardiac stents or artificial heart valves, they carry a card. They're gonna have a lot of this information. So rely on them. As we know, some patients are more reliable than others, but most of the time I would err on the side of over-reliance on the family and the patient to get that information. And then contact the, the team early. They're gonna have an LVAD nurse or coordinator on call and you know, oftentimes they may not be uh, uber well versed in our EMS setting, but they can at least get us started on, you know, relaying some of the alarm information, relaying some of the controller information, and even if nothing else, confirming where the patient's destination is going to be as far as, you know, where their LVAB was implanted. So they're going to guide you through the device basics and troubleshooting the device itself should that need arise. Yes, and again, there's also going to be some things, though, that because we're the eyes and the ears and the, and the boots on the ground, we're going to have to make some clinical decisions as well. You know, talking with medics about LVADs as, as, as our cardiac guru, what's your number one question that you get? Because I think this is, is the same for everyone. Yeah, is, is, do they have a pulse and how do I get a blood pressure? So best starting point from your clinical assessment is, is, is going to be the blood pressure assessment differences. And these pumps are non-pulsatile. So the flow is continuous. So you're going to have a connection in the left ventricle through the pump itself back into the ascending aorta. And the, basically the pump is taking the blood out of the weak, weak heart and putting it back in the aorta, providing perfusion. But again, it's non-pulsatile. So you will not have a systolic and a diastolic blood pressure. You're not going to feel a pulse oftentimes. Unless, again, there are rare times when the LV is still active enough that you can feel a pulse. And I would always recommend you checking just to be sure. And if you do feel a pulse, you can get a, a traditional systolic and diastolic blood pressure. But if you don't feel a pulse, then we've got to rely on some secondary clinical signs. Uh, if you read the book, if you look at uh, blog posts or other educational resources, you know, the discussion always leads to, well, then you put on a manual cuff and you grab your handy Doppler and you check a brachial or a radial Doppler flow. And when the sound returns, that's your map or your mean arterial pressure. Now, all the MCHD listeners out there are screaming at me right now. We don't have a Doppler, right, Patrick? And the answer is yes. So how are we going to assess blood pressure without a Doppler in a patient with a continuous flow pump in place where getting a systolic and diastolic is impossible? And we've got to rely on our clinical exam skills at that point. So assess mental status, assess capillary refill and perfusion, 
color and our old standby uh, probably the most important value that we get oftentimes in in uh, EMS care and that's our entitled co2 so if we pair those things together if a patient is mentating if a patient has good color if they have an entitle of 35 do they have a do they have a map yes if you have a patient that does not have an LVAD and ha- has good color is talking to you with normal mental status and has an entitle of 35 do they have a map Yes. So it's the same thing as a non-VAD patient, right? You just have to look at their mental status, look at their color, use your entitle to your advantage. And if all those things exist, we're pretty comfortable that map is there. Now, is it 70? Is it 60? Is it 75 or 80? We'll know that once we get to the emergency department and they do pull out their handy Dopplers and calculate that map, or they put an A-line in and calculate the arterial pressure. But from, from our standpoint, use your clinical exam skills, use your everyday assessment skills, and it'll be pretty accurate. So, and how many creative ways can these things go wrong? Oh, we could we could talk for hours, but let's try to keep it to the most important things that we're going to see as 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 paramedics in the field and realistically the things that uh, provide us a, a realistic you know framework and my best instruction to split it up is to start with thinking about VAD specific complications and VAD associated complications and again this just gives us a framework so what are the VAD specific complications the things that only patients with ventricular assist devices get and that really is two main categories they can have pump failure and they can have pump thrombosis And we'll talk a little bit more as we go through about what those look like. They can also have VAD associated complications. And what are those going to entail? Number one, the most common is going to be infection. And if you think about it, you've got a pump implanted in the abdomen or the chest cavity with a drive line, a set of wires that extend out to the external surface. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out is no matter how sterile we treat this, that can be a nidus for infection, can be, you know, a humongous infection risk. So infection is number one. In fact, 20% or a fifth of LVAD patients have driveline pump pocket infections uh, within year one of, in, uh, of implantment. So very common. Number two, GI bleed. And again, this was the most common ED diagnosis in the single EMS LVAD study that I could find. And this is multifactorial. If, you've, if you're an LVAD patient, you can guarantee the patient's going to be anticoagulated. Most times they're going to be on Coumadin. Uh, I don't know if we've progressed to using Eliquis and Xarelto in these patients. That would be a, a CV-specific question. But assume they're going to be on some form of anticoagulation. They're going to be also on an antiplatelet as well. So they're going to be on clopidogrel most likely. Um, and the other problem these folks have is they've got a, a pump in place. And that pump... Uh, doesn't treat the platelets very kindly. Um, So these patients end up with acquired von Willebrand's disease. And that's uh, not really important for us to know any more than they're already anticoagulated, they're already on antiplatelet medication, and they have further platelet coagulation dysfunction because of the whirring of the pump itself. So it's it's almost a triple whammy. Strokes, both hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes are common in LVAD patients. And it doesn't, again, this one's not nearly as complicated as von Willebrand's disease. If you're on Xarelto, Coumadin, and Plavix, any minor trauma can cause subdural, epidural, subarachnoid bleeds. And from an embolic standpoint, as we mentioned earlier, the, the pumps can thrombose, which is why they're on the multiple uh, anticoagulant, antiplatelet medications. And if they can thrombose, what can that thrombosis do always? That thrombosis can embolize. So they can have increased risk of embolic and hemorrhagic stroke. And then finally, the pump 
is artificial physiology and it's connected to the LV uh, where the blood is pulled out, pumped back into the ascending aorta, but the right side of the heart is affected as well. And anytime you alter pressures, which side of the heart is most sensitive in any preload situation? It's always the RV and the RA because it's weaker walled. So from that suction standpoint, if you lose volume, if you have a pulmonary embolus, if you have a pericardial tamponade, if you have low volume state in general, uh, the RV can fail as well. So we wanna think about looking at JVD, look at peripheral edema, listen for rails, our classic signs of RV failure. And this is just more pronounced and more common in a patient with the pump in place. So if you are assessing your patient and you've, and you've, you've done your Doppler trick and now you look at the machine itself, what will that tell you about the patient? So it depends on the machine itself, the controller, and these are going to advance and and these are going to change, so this is not something for us to learn and memorize. But with the hardware version, you can see speed and power on the, on the newer controllers, the newer screens. Um, with the HeartMate 2 and 3, you get speed, power, flow, and pulsatility index. So let's go through each one of those. Um, and, and if you find someone with an older model LVAD, uh, some, some of those controllers have no no screen and no information. But as these advance, there's going to be more and more, I think, that's available to us. But in general, when we want to relay these things back to uh, the LVAG coordinators, the speed is in RPM, and that's just the speed of the pump itself. And that's usually a set value, and it depends on the, the pump type what that set value is going to be. And again, I wouldn't know anything more, and I don't know anything more than that speed exists, and I need to look at that speed and give it back to the LVAD coordinator when I call them, because I'm doing the same thing if they walk through my ED front door. Uh, the power is going to fluctuate based on speed and, and, and flow and resistance and other you know, other properties, it's going to be reported in watts. And again, that's going to fluctuate. It's going to be a value that you want to give to the coordinator. Flow is calculated from speed and power, and it's going to depend on the, the device. It's going to depend on the pressure gradient. It's going to fluctuate as well. Pulsatility index is another value you may see, and that's a reflection of the native left ventricular contribution to flow and to, and to the pulse that's present. So again, I wouldn't get too deep in the weeds here. Just know that these values exist. And if the coordinators ask for them, know how to sort of give them that off the controller screen. You know, really the point in this section for me, from an educational standpoint, and when I went through this, I learned uh, a majority of my LVAD uh, knowledge putting this together, is that I think we often forget that the LV is still, still pumping. When you get an LVAD placed, your heart does not stop beating. But why do we get the LVAD place in the first place? Think back to the very beginning. These are patients that are awaiting transplant or who are so in stage that their EFs in the, you know, you're talking about the, the 10%, the single digit range, as opposed to the 55% that's normal. So these patients have minimal native pump function, but they have some. And if you're dealing with somebody who's on that ledge, with these, which these patients are, if they've got a native EF of 10%, that's still a very important 10%. So their heart's still beating normally. So the normal, usual things that can cause cardiovascular compromise can still occur. So we've talked about pump thrombosis and driveline infections and GI bleeds from Von Willebrand's issues. 
But these patients can still have normal old arrhythmias. They can still have VF and VT. And in fact, VF and VT in these folks is, is very, very common. And what is that going to cause in these patients? Well, if they're relying on that 10% EF and they go into VF, what's that EF going to do? Tank. It's going to tank. Now, the pump's still working. So you may have a VF patient with an LVAD that's looking at you, talking, talking to you, uh, which is not uncommon. My wife had a, a case recently of a talking LVAD patient with some, with some VF, which is something that we don't normally see. But in this case, it's not going to cause cardiac arrest, comatose, altered, stop breathing. It's going to cause the patient to go into RV failure because they're going to lose 10% of their EF or 5% of their EF or 15% of their EF, whatever it is. All of a sudden. All of a sudden. And so as opposed to needing, you know, cardiac arrest resuscitation, they're just going to need to be shocked, right? And those patients need to be taken out of that VFVT as quickly as possible. So you just said it. You can shock these patients. You can shock these patients. Absolutely. A AP positioning of the pads. Uh, you try not to place anything directly over any devices or wires. This holds true to pacemakers, AICVs, LVADs as well. But if the patient is is unstable and you see VF or VT, absolutely shock them like you would any other patient. They can also have MIs, right? Why do patients get in-stage CHF? Oftentimes from coronary ischemia. So they can have acute MI that leads to loss of native ejection fraction. And that can be something that pushes them over into RV failure. They also are sensitive to afterload. So these pumps don't handle afterload increases very well. So if they've got a map of 100 or 110, that's not what the pump is built for. So those patients in that situation can often need afterload reduction. Now, I would say this is probably a case that I would want to see Doppler repeated map increase before I started giving these folks, say, nitrates or ACE inhibitors or other antihypertensive medication afterload reducers, uh, because these we'll talk about as we move through are very preload dependent. So I would err on the side of fluids as opposed to blood pressure reduction in LVAD patients. But if you get to the ED and, and I put in an A-line and their MAP's 110, the pump is not going to like that. Uh, so they, 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 they can need afterload reduction as well, just like any other end-stage CHF patient can present. So let's assume the worst happens and your patient goes into an unresponsive state. They are pulseless to begin with and your EKG is not telling you much. Normally what we would say is get on that chest, CPR, CPR, CPR. How about in these patients? Well, that, is, uh, that is probably question number two that I've gotten discussing LVADs around the office. Number one being, how do you check the blood pressure? Number two, what about CPR? And if the patient is altered, like we said before, signs of poor perfusion, pale, cool, in tidal less than 20, then we can safely assume cardiac arrest. And remember, these are end-stage CHF patients to begin with who are either being bridged to transplant or destination therapy with this device. So we're all afraid of jostling the device or dislodging the, the device. But if you don't do CPR in a patient that looks like this, what's the end point? They die. They die. Right, we've got the ability clinically and from an entitle standpoint to check perfusion reliably enough to know. If the patient is altered and their color is good and their entitle is 40, I would probably transport without CPR. I would want to see all three bullet points hit before I started CPR. But if I've got an altered, poorly perfused patient with an entitle less than 20 and an LVAD in place, 
there's no data out there that proves this for sure, but that patient to me is a patient in cardiac arrest every time. That patient is a cardiac arrest patient if they don't have an LVAD to me every time. I would tell you to start CPR on a non-LVAD patient that had an end title of 15, no mental status, no perfusion. Are there any considerations we should give to manual CPR versus mechanical CPR by an outside device? So there's... Again, like everything else in this new technology world, there's minimal evidence. There's a small case series by uh, Shiner and others that looked at 10 or 12 patients, uh, again, out in San Diego that got CPR with LVADs, and there were no dislodgements. Uh, There's nothing that I could find about mechanical versus manual chest compressions. So I I would say go with whatever your service recommends. Here at MCHD, I would treat it like we would anyone else. We'd start with manual compressions, and when the Lucas arrives, we'd hook the Lucas up, and and, and I would see, I see no problem personally with using that. I'm not going to speak for any other medical director out there. And again, this is not based in any large, large data sets by any means. It might stand to reason the AHA treats both of them the same. So there's no reason to assume it would be different in an LVAD patient. Yeah, and the newest AHA RECs, they've danced around the, the issue of CPR and LVAD patients. But the latest RECs are very clear that if the patient is altered, poorly perfused, poor in title, that CPR is recommended cautiously. Again, I feel like in that situation, we're at the end of the road. And if we choose to do nothing, uh, the outcome is known. So I would, if it were me, I would, I would take the shot. And again, we talked about, missed one bullet point here, which I want to bring up for the listeners. I know they're going to ask me this one uh, just because I love questions about amiodarone. So I know I'm going to get asked it. These patients, VFVT, talking to you, starting with an IV antiarrhythmic is entirely reasonable. If you wanted to give the amio bolus first before you cardioverted the patient, just like you would treat a stable VT, or I guess a stable VF doesn't exist without an LVAD, but uh, amio or lidocaine is not, not unreasonable in these folks. So things for a crashing LVAD patient we would consider is number one, call the coordinator. Yeah, I feel like that we need to know where we're going with the patient. Again, this is none of these things are going to happen in linear. These are going to happen in parallel, right? I would, you know, you're going to have first responders, you're going to have your partner. So I would, I would have somebody involved very quickly finding out where the LVAD was placed and who the coordinator is and make a phone call to get them as the information as quickly as possible, uh, just so they can run through the alarms and run through the controller values with you. I would not delay things like IV access, the ABCs, you know, ventilation, fluid bolus, but I would make sure that all these things are, are happening at once, if that makes sense. It's the same time. One of you's on the phone with the coordinator, the other's doing care. Yeah, and and try to keep it short and sweet with them, but get them the information they need. You know, ask them if there's any other information they can provide. You know, we discussed before the podcast came on, you know, where do these patients get transported, I think was the question that you posed to me. And I would, this is a tough one. You know, if the patient sprained their ankle, I don't think they probably need to go to their, Transplant center. transplant center, but if they had a near syncopal episode and sprained their ankle, we have to assume that's LVAD related. Yeah, I would be very, very overcautious because when you think about the things that we talked about, you know, VAD associated complications, GI bleeds, near syncope, arrhythmias, near syncope, sepsis, near syncope, weakness, nausea, vomiting, all the vague, dizzy things could fall into those VAD associated complication lists. So unless it was very clear, I cut my hand in the garage. Not I fell down because I passed out and cut my hand. Yes, I would be very, very liberal with taking these folks to the spot where they had their transplant because that's where they had the VAD associated knowledge. That's where they have the resources. That's where they have the equipment. One thing we've not mentioned 
that I probably remiss is we also need to listen for the hum. You're going to hear with your stethoscope over the VAD, you're going to hear a hum if the pump is working. And to be clear, you mean with a stethoscope, not from across the room. With a stethoscope, you know, palpate, listen over the chest, over the abdomen, and listen for the hum. Some are linear, some are rotary. That doesn't really matter. You just want to listen for the hum and make sure that it's working. If the pump is not working, you want to check all connections and check the batteries very closely. Never, 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 ever, ever take out both batteries at once. Uh, so you want to check the drive line, check the connections to the controller, check the connections to the battery, make sure the lights are on and make sure you're relaying what you see to the, to the VAG coordinator. Again, early IV access or IO access, Early fluids, VADs are very preload dependent. They love fluid. So I would, uh, if the patient was altered or poorly perfused, shocky looking, I would I would bolus that patient very quickly. We're not worried in that patient about a fluid overload problem. I mean, it's a balance. You definitely can fluid overload these patients, but uh, you know, with the first 500 cc's, the first liter, I would definitely get in quickly and assess because your most likely issue, if you look at your VAD associated complications, whether it's GI bleed, whether it's pump failure, whether it's thrombosis, whether it's sepsis, all these things are going to be preload dependent. So the odds are in your favor that you're going to be right there. Early norepinephrine, if there's signs of shock or poor perfusion, um, again, depending on your presser, the service you, you work here at MCHD, we're, we're norepinephrine fans. So I would, I would be quick with norepinephrine in these patients if they're shocky or poorly perfused. And then ask a targeted history focused on the signs and symptoms of infection, of GI bleeding, of stroke, right? If we know those are the VAD associated complications, ask about those things. Dark stools, general weakness, headache, falls, trauma, vomiting, worsened confusion, fever. Look, look at the abdominal wall, chills, sweats, make sure there's no redness, no pus coming from the site. Again, these patients don't always have fever. They're not always, you know, gonna, gonna be febrile. They're not always gonna have elevated white counts and those sort of things. But we want to at least ask our questions in a focused manner, knowing what the most common complications are that they have. And then when you do transport the patient, don't forget to take the extra batteries and the extra controller with you. It can be very vital uh, for the LVAD coordinators and the LVAD folks once you arrive at the hospital. So that's probably a good point to wrap us up. Anything else we missed there, Brad? No, I think that sounds good. We hit how to check the blood pressure, right? Make sure you're listening for the hum. Make sure you're checking all connections. We don't have a Doppler here at MCHD, so checking the blood pressure is going to involve clinical gut along with your entitled values. Remember, they're preload dependent with LVAD, so rarely is a fluid challenge wrong. Blood is pumped from the LV into the ascending aorta, no matter what the, the device is, and the native LV is still going to pump some, so that that, that function is important if the patient is in arrhythmia and appears unstable, we shock them like normal. If they're in an arrhythmia and they appear relatively stable, we can start with our antiarrhythmic drugs as usual. Involve the family and the LVAD team early. Use the controller to relay the alarms and the pump values. Again, green good, yellow a little worse, red a lot worse. Think about the flow, the power, uh, the pulsatility index, and make sure you know to at least know enough to, to relay those back to the LVAD nurse. And finally, if the patient appears to be in arrest, CPR without, patient's going to die anyway. So I think it's a situation where we can be afraid of it, but the other option of leaving a poorly perfused 
poorly mentating, minimal entitled CO2 LVAD patient without some brain perfusion, you're going to end up with death, right? And a little bit of evidence that we have shows that CPR is fairly safe in these patients. So uh, I'm not jumping up and down to do CPR in LVAD patient either, but if it's the only option, that's the direction we have to go. So thanks for joining us, Brad. Thank you, sir. As always, if you have questions or concerns, ideas for future podcasts, send us an email at podcast at mchd-tx.org and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Help us get get out there and get more visible. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everyone soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.